Good morning. Pete and Sue are legends, aren't they? They're amazing. Thank you so much for having me here this morning. It's great to be here with you. I just want to dive straight in, if that's all right with you. Um, I want to tell you about something that happened to a friend of mine. So seven years ago, a friend of mine died in a car accident. Uh, basically, what happened was she was um, cycling to work. She was in her 30s. She was cycling to work, and as she was cycling along, a truck driver basically reversed and didn't see her until it was too late. And he was arrested for causing death by dangerous driving, which, you know, was kind of obvious that he didn't really have any excuses. He had rearview mirrors. He had one of those cameras that shows you your blind spot. Um, there were other drivers who were hooting their horns at him. There were pedestrians yelling, but um, tragically, he wasn't aware of what was happening until it was too late. And he was arrested, and he went to court, and he said that he was guilty. And the judge said to him, I need to warn you that when you come back for sentencing, you are facing a custodial sentence you are going to be going to prison. But after the judge said that, my friend's parents wrote to the judge and they basically said, we're Christians and we would like you to show mercy to the driver who killed our daughter. They basically recognized that him going to prison wasn't going to bring her back. And so they said to the judge, we want you to show mercy. So when they came back for sentencing, the judge said to the guy, the parents of the woman you've killed have written to me and they've asked me to show mercy to you, so I'm not going to send you to prison. Now, he still lost his driving license, which meant he lost his livelihood, so there were consequences for his actions, but he was shown mercy. And what I think is even more astonishing is that when the judge read out some of the letter that my friend's parents wrote, he said they have recognized how this has affected you. I think, isn't that amazing? I think I'd be thinking about how it had affected me, not how it had affected the driver. But local and national newspapers covered this story. In fact, one national newspaper ran it with the headline, Death Driver Shown Mercy. And the reason it was a national news headline is because it's so rare. We live in a society that is sadly lacking in mercy. All around us, we see brokenness in our society. I just want to read you a few statistics that illustrate that wherever we look, whether it's our political life, whether it's the Brexit debate, whether it's social media, whether it's the election campaign, it's hard to find mercy anywhere. It's not a word you'll hear a lot of politicians talking about. It's not a word you'll hear much of our media talking about. And it's something our society desperately needs. Do you know that at the moment, the suicide rate in our nation among 10 to 24-year-olds is at a 19-year high? And that's at the same time as 2,000 mental health professionals are leaving their jobs every single month. There's a crisis in mental health care in our nation. Last year, 726 people died on our streets who were homeless. And that's at the same time as council spending to support homeless people was halved in the last decade. There's a crisis in our nation of housing and homelessness. 
225,000 older people say that they regularly go an entire week without speaking to a single other person. At the same time as that, three million hours of home care for older people have been cut in, our, in the last three years in our country. There's a crisis in care for older people. Last year saw the highest number of fatal stabbings in our nation since records began in 1946. And in the last decade, we've lost 22,000 police officers. There's a crisis of violent crime in our nation. And in an average school, in a class of 30 children, nine of them will live in poverty in our nation at the moment. And work is no longer a guaranteed route out of poverty because in-work poverty, where at least one member of a household works, is rising faster than employment rates. There's a crisis of poverty in our nation at the moment. Our nation needs mercy. It needs mercy. Because even against this backdrop of statistics like that, I think if we're really honest, there's still this lingering question in our nation about who really deserves our help. How did people get themselves into the mess in which they find themselves? You know, I think there are struggles in our own hearts that go on. Even if you're here today and you're a Christian and you follow Jesus and you read your Bible and you see that God cares about those who are in poverty, there can still be this lingering question amongst us. Does everyone who asks for help deserve it? You know, we see images of children starving in Africa and I think something happens in our hearts where there's just this compassionate response, which is the right way to respond, where we think, oh my goodness, oh, what can we do? How can we change this? What can we do to help? But poverty in the UK or in the Western world in general is a bit more complicated than that, isn't it? I met a guy who's going to come up on the screen behind me who was holding up this sign saying, why lie? I want beer. How are we supposed to respond to him? Does he deserve our help or not? We see headlines in our newspapers all the time that tell us that people are scrounging, they're skiving, they're sponging, they're fiddlers, they're work shy. And this one, the biggest one that I've put up from the Daily Mail there, some of you will remember this guy, Mick Philpot. He set fire to his house, and several of his children died in that fire. It's an awful, atrocious thing that he did, but what this headline does is it says it's intrinsically linked to the fact that he's on benefits, which is not true. We see headlines like this, and if we're not careful, they can start to seep into us and shape our attitudes, shape our mindset, and tell us that most people who are in poverty in our nation today are there because they deserve it. They're there because they made bad choices, they made bad decisions, and if they would only sort their lives out, they could be okay. We live in a context where we've got politicians and the media and social commentators telling us that they're appalled that children need food banks in our country, but at the same time, they seem to hold on to this view, which is deeply entrenched, that most people are architects of their own fate. Most people can get themselves out of trouble if they want to, so if they're in a mess, it's just because they got themselves there. 
When we look at the Bible, we see that actually God has always been especially concerned about poverty. There are literally hundreds of verses in the Bible about poverty and justice issues. Actually, you can buy a Bible called the Poverty and Justice Bible. If you're lazy, it's highlighted every one of the verses for you. You can just open this Bible and you can find them. They're all set out for you, highlighted in bright orange. And you can barely turn a page without something being highlighted. God's care for the poorest is right through every section of the Bible. There are two specific provisions in the older part of the Bible, in the Old Testament, that I think particularly help us to see God's heart for people. One of them is the Sabbath year, which we read about in Deuteronomy 15. In the Sabbath year, which was the seventh year, we're told that all debts were to be cancelled among God's people, those that follow God. Imagine that in our society, if every seventh year debts were cancelled. Do you know debt is one of the leading causes of suicide in our nation? Imagine if you were in debt. I've been there myself. I was in overwhelming debt about 15 years ago. And you feel like you're never going to be free of it. Imagine if you knew the longest you'd ever have to wait to be free of it was seven years. It would bring hope to you. You wouldn't need to contemplate suicide because you'd know freedom was going to come. And it wouldn't be hanging over you forever. And the second provision in the Old Testament is the year of Jubilee, which happened every 50 years. It's in Leviticus 25, where it tells us not only were debts cancelled, but if you had had to put yourself into slavery, which was something that happened in that culture when you fell on hard times, you might put yourself into slavery with another family. When the year of Jubilee came around, you were to be given your freedom back. Or if you'd had land in your family, it might have been in your family for generations and then life had got difficult for you and you'd had to sell your land. When the year of Jubilee came around, you'd get your land given back to you. It's amazing to me. I think it's such a beautiful way that grace and mercy has been built into the whole economic system of the society the way God would have run it. We see that basically the um, extremes of wealth and poverty are modified by the way God asked his people to live. It meant you couldn't go on getting richer and richer and richer at the expense of the poor, but you also could never be in a hopeless state if you were in poverty, because you would know either the Sabbath year is coming or the year of Jubilee is coming, and everything gets reset for you. And it doesn't just get reset where, well, you get your freedom, you get your land back, and off you go. Let's see if you can make a better go of things this time around. You know, you messed it up last time, but maybe if you get a second chance, you might make a better go. Let's, go. let's see how that goes for you. No, God said, when you let the slave go, when you, let them, you return their land to them, when you cancel their debts, it says you're to supply them liberally from what you have. What that basically means is you're supposed to give them the best opportunity of making a success of their life by giving them um, more than they need to flourish and to thrive. It's everywhere we look in the Old Testament, God's concern for those in poverty. But I think it's nowhere clearer in the Bible than when we look at the life of Jesus. Jesus spent most of his time with people in chronic need of one type or another. He spent most of his energy meeting the needs of those around him. We actually see in Luke 4 that Jesus started his whole ministry on earth actually by saying... 
the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me to bring good news to the poor. For Jesus, caring for those in poverty wasn't a sideshow. It wasn't an optional extra. It wasn't something he got round to when he got all the important stuff out of the way. It was central to his life. It was central to what he was doing. It was central to what he was about because it revealed the merciful character of God. You know, when Jesus came, there was this breaking in of heaven to earth. And so often in church, when we talk about things like that, we talk about healings and signs and wonders and miracles. And all those things are wonderful. And who doesn't want to see people get healed? You know, that's great. But sometimes we forget to talk about the fact that it also meant that the poor were lifted up out of their poverty. That's part of what heaven coming to earth looks like, is that people are lifted up out of their poverty. And Jesus himself said in Matthew 25 that how his followers treat those who are hungry, those who are thirsty, those who are strangers or foreigners, those who are sick or in prison, or without clothes, how we treat them is actually a sign of how we're treating him. It's sobering for us, isn't it? Stuff that we need to take seriously. It's not a departmental thing that is for some Christians and not for others, but it's an essential part of following Jesus. The closer we follow him, the more closely we walk with him, it is a natural and inevitable consequence that we will become more merciful, more compassionate, and more kind to those around us. Concern for the poorest isn't an optional extra for Christians. It is an essential part of following Jesus. It's not something that can be left to a few enthusiastic food bank volunteers. It's for all of us. So how do we apply that in our broken society today? How do, what does that actually mean then when it comes to someone holding up a sign saying, why lie, I want beer? I think there are two particular stories in the Bible that can help us to think through some of this and to navigate it. Um, if you've got a Bible and you want to turn to them, they're in 2 Samuel 9 and Luke 15, but they're going to come up on the screen behind me. I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but I'm going to start in um, 2 Samuel 9, verse 3 where it says this, the king, that's David, asked, is there no one still left of the house of Saul to whom I can show God's kindness? Ziba answered the king, there is still a son of Jonathan, he is lame in both feet. And when Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, came to David, he bowed down to pay him honor. David said, Mephibosheth, at your service, he replied. Don't be afraid, David said to him, for I will surely show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. I will restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you will always eat at my table. Mephibosheth bowed down and said, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. Now, we know from a few chapters earlier in the Bible, in 2 Samuel 4, it tells us that Mephibosheth became lame in both feet because he was in an accident when he was five years old. It tells us that his nurse picked him up because they were in danger and was running to safety with him. And as she hurried to leave, he fell. And that's how he became disabled. Now, imagine with me, if you will, Mephibosheth being here today saying, I can't support myself. I can't get a job. I, like, I don't know how I'm going to feed myself, how I'm going to support myself. 
And you say to him, well, what happened? You know, how's this happened? Tell me a bit of your story. And he tells you that he was in this terrible accident when he was five years old. I don't know about you, but something in me wants to be compassionate towards him. I think you are just a victim of circumstances. You are in need through no fault of your own whatsoever. You didn't do anything wrong. This awful tragedy happened to you when you were five, and it's affected your whole life. I want to help you. Also, did you notice how grateful he was? He says to David, what is your servant that you should notice a dead dog like me? He's humble. It's easy to help someone who's like that, isn't it? But then we turn to another story in the Bible in Luke 15. And uh, many of you will know the story well. It's the story of the prodigal son. And it's primarily about God's mercy and loving kindness towards us. But I think it has practical application for us today about how we think about poverty in our society as well. So from Luke 15, uh, verse 11, it says this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, I don't know about you, but I think I've got a bit more of a problem here. You imagine that the prodigal son runs in and he says, I'm starving to death. Will you help me? And you say, well, what happened to you? And he says, I had all this money and I squandered it on wild living. And we know from the older brother in the story that actually a lot of what he spent his money on was prostitutes. So imagine that. He says, I need help. I'm starving to death. And you say, what happened? And he says, well, I had money, but I spent it on prostitutes and wild living. What happens in my heart in response to someone like that is very different to what happens in my heart when I encounter someone like Mephibosheth. You know, the prodigal son is in need entirely through his own bad choices. He made every decision wrong that he could make, and that's how he got into this mess. You know, I look at these two characters of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son, and I know that I wouldn't often struggle to help Mephibosheth, but I do often struggle to help someone like the prodigal son. And I think this is so relevant to our communities in Britain today when we are presented with these stark images of people that we're told are skiving and scrounging and things like that. 
Most of us will have a scale in our lives of who we think deserves help and who we think doesn't deserve help. Our society definitely has a scale of the deserving to the undeserving. I think most of us, if we're truly honest, have a cut-off point for our own compassion. Even some of you here might be, no, I'm giving myself, I'm serving, um, getting involved in night shelters, soup kitchens, food banks, street life, all these different things. You, you might think, I, I don't think I do. But I think all of us have certain exceptions to the rule. Certain people that we think aren't worth helping or we just want to shut down our compassion towards them. There's a wonderful Christian woman at the food bank in Hastings that I'm involved with. And she gives hours every week to serving at that food bank. And she says for her, the people she doesn't want to help are those who come in and act like they've got a right to the food. She says, we have people come in and they look at the food you're giving them and they say, I don't want that, I don't want that, I don't want that. Can I have some more of that instead? Haven't you got any chocolate? And she says, sometimes they walk out and they don't even say thank you. And what happens in her heart in that situation is that she wants to run out the door after them and say, give me the food back because you're not even grateful for it. Maybe you guys know what that feels like. I know I do. Have you ever held a door open for someone who doesn't say thank you? You might all be a lot nicer than me, but I want to slam the door back in their face. I do. I'm just being honest with you. I do. And if you let someone go in your car and they don't do that polite little hand wave that you're supposed to do, I have been known to go like this because I want them to know they're supposed to be grateful. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to be thankful. But I think where this really hit home for me was um, I used to be a journalist and I lived in China for a while and I was in Beijing and one night I was out with some friends and this little kid came up to me and he was filthy his clothes were filthy and they were threadbare and they were hanging off him. And he came up and I asked, he asked me for money. And we'd been told not to give money to street kids because if you gave to one, you might suddenly find you were inundated with dozens of them. Um, and I'm quite short, so for me, that means almost drowning in children. So I looked around. I couldn't see any, uh, any other kids. And this, this kid had the brightest smile that was so kind of out of sync with the rest of his appearance. And I felt compassion for him, so I thought I'll give him a bit of money. And I saw him take the money over to a street vendor and buy a rice cake, just a round little rice cake, kind of that sort of size. And, you know, in my head while that's happening, I was thinking, oh, this is nice. He's going to have some food. I'm such a good person. I've really helped him out here. And then I saw him take this um, rice cake to a woman who I assumed was his mother. And she broke a little bit off. And in the few seconds in which this was happening, I was thinking, that's nice. She's going to get a little bit. Oh, I've helped two people. Isn't this good? And then I saw her give the child the small bit. And she ate the vast majority of this rice cake. And what happened in my heart was I was instantly outraged. I was indignant. I thought, who takes food from a kid that looks like that? Who does that? And lots of things didn't go through my head. I didn't think that maybe someone else had already helped them that night. And maybe I was the second person and maybe the child had already eaten and she hadn't. 
I didn't think, maybe it's like when you're on a plane and they say, put your own oxygen mask on first before you help someone else. And maybe she was sitting there thinking, I am so weak, I am not going to be able to carry him to wherever we need to go to sleep tonight to be safe. I didn't even think, if she was doing exactly what I thought she was doing, which is taking food from a starving child, how desperate would you have to be to do that? None of those things occurred to me at all. I literally pole vaulted over compassion about as fast as you possibly can. And what I actually thought is, if I'd known that was going to happen, I wouldn't have helped that kid. I wrote them off in an instant and judged them. What should our responses be? What do the stories of Mephibosheth and the prodigal son tell us about how God wants us to respond? Well, I think firstly that while Mephibosheth and the prodigal son stand in stark contrast to one another, you know, one of them in need through no fault of his own, the other one clearly very much in need for his own bad decision making, what we see is that the father figure in both stories acts in exactly the same way. King David and the father of the prodigal son were both looking out. King David, it says, was looking out for someone to show God's kindness to. Lately, I've been trying to start each day with a different question on my mind, and this question is, who can I show the kindness of God to today? It's a totally different question to, do you deserve my help or not? Its starting place is fundamentally different. And the amazing thing is, King David was looking out for someone of the family of Jonathan and the family of Saul to show kindness to. Well, Saul had tried to kill David more than once. And actually, David says to Mephibosheth, I'm going to restore the land of your grandfather Saul. David followed the laws that God had set out and said, I'm going to restore this land to you, even though Saul had tried to kill David. And then in the story of the prodigal son, it says, the father spotted his son returning while he was still a long way off. He was looking out for him, and his immediate response when he saw him was kindness and mercy. God has always been especially concerned about those in poverty, but what these stories show us is that in God's kingdom, compassion and kindness and mercy have everything to do with the giver and very little to do with the recipient. It's totally countercultural to the way our society operates. The compassion and mercy of Jesus is based on who he is, not on who the person in front of him is or what they've done or failed to do. So if you're a Christian here today, when you're asking whether or not you should help someone, don't look at the person in front of you, look at Jesus Christ. Don't look at the behavior of the person in front of you. Look at the behavior of Jesus Christ. It's totally different because the answer to the brokenness in our society isn't to point the finger and say, well, you got yourself in that mess. You made your bed. Go lie in it. You know, God never says that. Aren't you grateful that God has never said that to you? I am. You know, Jesus interacted with those on the margins of society. Those that were ostracized by society, Jesus sought them out, and they seemed to feel very comfortable with him. Those that society called unclean, whether that was lepers or prostitutes or even um, the despised tax collectors of the day, these people felt comfortable being around Jesus because he showed them mercy. And he didn't put any conditions on his acts of mercy. 
There's a story in the Bible of Jesus healing 10 lepers. And it says one of them came back to thank him. The next verse doesn't say, so he chased after the other nine and said, you've got to give that healing back now because you weren't grateful for it. It doesn't say that. Jesus acted in accordance with how he wanted to behave. His behavior wasn't affected by how people responded to him. He was kind to the unkind. And he calls us, those of us who follow him here, he calls us to be the same. It's not to say we don't think about the type of help we offer, but so often we use that as an excuse. You know, we walk past someone begging on the streets and we think, well, I don't know what they're going to spend their money on, so I won't help. But if we walk towards them thinking, how can I show you the kindness of God today? Actually, it's an opportunity for us to help them to do something actually in keeping